Welcome to Red Leg Nation Radio, your home for discussion and analysis of Cincinnati Reds baseball all year long. Now here's your host, Chad Dotson. Hello everyone, welcome to Red Leg Nation Radio, episode number 170. I'm Chad Dotson. This week, uh, in just a moment, I'll let you hear the interview. I talked with uh, Tom Van Riper, author of a new Reds book, Cincinnati Red and Dodger Blue, really interesting book about the rivalry between the Dodgers and the Reds, mostly in the 1970s, but uh, into the 80s. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating book for anyone who, number one, remembers that era and when, and when the Dodgers were a big rival of the Reds. kind of hard to believe now, but back when they were in the National League West together, big rivals. And also for those of you that don't remember that time, sort of a, a, an interesting chapter in Reds history that really hasn't been explored. So in just a moment, we'll get to that. But how about these Reds? They continue to be the Reds, which is to say they're sort of treading water right around 500, which is, you know, I'm okay with that, frankly, this year. First game of the uh, series against the Atlanta Braves, we had Devin Mesoraco with an extra inning walk-off home run. And, and, and how happy are you about what we've seen from Devin Mesoraco so far this year? I mean, come on. 348 on base percentage, uh, you know. Uh, so far this season, swinging the bat a lot better than I frankly expected he would after effectively two seasons away from baseball, certainly away from the major league game. And, uh, you know, it's taken it's taken him some time to get back uh, physically ready this season. And, and I thought it might take even longer to get his swing ready. Swing looks pretty good. Looks smooth. Looks uh, he's in with power. And uh, as someone said uh, after the game last night, you know, Miserocco, for example, 2014 Miserocco, when he was an all-star, you couldn't sneak a fastball by him. And last night uh, when the uh, Reds and Braves uh, headed into extra innings and Hotlanta tried to sneak a fastball by Miserocco, and it was it was the old Devin. He deposited it into the seat. So good to see. It was the second home run. Uh, you know, the more he can continue to improve, the more he can continue to contribute to this team the better this, uh, better this team uh, has a chance of being. And, you know, that's sort of the key to the second half of the year, I think. Uh, Mesoraco getting healthy and get some of these pitchers healthy. Health. Uh, get uh, Homer Bailey back, assuming Homer Bailey ever comes back. Get uh, Brandon Finnegan back. You would hope that Anthony DiSclafani can return at some point, and then all of a sudden, team looks a little bit different. So that was, uh, you know, that was fun, and it's uh, it's fun to watch Mesoraco do good things. What else happened in that uh, first game of the Braves series? The return of Brendan Phillips. And, of course, Phillips got a nice ovation from the fans at Great American Ballpark, as he should have. And uh, it uh, he gave a couple of interviews around the game that uh, got a little bit of play in the media and uh, drew the ire of some fans and uh, drew the cheers of other fans. Basically, he said that uh, he felt like the Reds giving number four you know, Phillips wore number four in Cincinnati for, for so many years. And he felt like the, that the fact that the Reds gave that number away to someone else so quickly was, quote-unquote, a slap in the face to, to Mr. Phillips, uh, who called himself Mr. Cincinnati in the in the interview. I'm still Mr. Cincinnati. So what do you think? Was it a slap in the face to Brandon Phillips that the Reds gave number four away uh, so quickly? And, of course, number four this year is being worn by the immortal Scooter Jeanette. May have to start calling Scooter Mister Cincinnati. Think that'll upset Brandon? I'm sure Brandon uh, Phillips is a regular listener to the Red Leg Nation Radio podcast, so I don't want to I don't want to tweak him too much because Brandon was a great Red. He was. He had a great career. Uh, but the, but it, we continue to see among a certain segment of the fan base, and I get the sense that the same segment of the fan base that is 
critical of Joey Votto, was critical of uh, Junior and, and Adam Dunn back in the day, the players that were producing at that time. For some reason, uh, and a certain segment of the fans wants to deify Brandon Phillips. And, and I don't know why you have to do that. You know, Phillips had a great career as a Red. Brandon Phillips is a surefire Cincinnati Reds Hall of Famer, one of the best second basemen in the history of, of the franchise. He's, you know, going to be fondly remembered for just a, a really good 11-year run in Cincinnati. And, and I don't know why we can't look upon him favorably and think about uh, you know, all the good things he did and just sort of uh, remember him as, as, as a really good Red. I don't know why people have to go overboard. And what I mean is this. A couple of the comments we kept seeing yesterday were, were, well, of course it was a slap in the face. The Reds should have retired number four. Brandon Phillips, number four. Really? Retired number four? Yeah. The other thing we saw, we saw was that uh, Brandon Phillips should uh, is not only going to be a Reds Hall of Famer, he's probably going into the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And uh, really? We can't just appreciate Brandon Phillips for what he is without realizing that there is a zero percent chance that Brandon Phillips is going to be enshrined in Cooperstown. I mean, it's just not going to happen. It's not a criticism of Brandon Phillips. Lots of great players aren't in Cooperstown. It's it's not a it's not a criticism to say that he's short of being a Hall of Famer, being a team Hall of Famer, a Reds Hall of Famer. That's I mean that's huge. I mean that's 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 close to the pinnacle in the profession. And when you think about the number of people that play baseball that uh, can't be inducted into a team's Hall of Fame or won't be inducted into a team's Hall of Fame. I, you know, we're talking talking about Phillips is one of the better players in the history of this franchise. I don't know why we have to use hyperbole. And we we also had a pretty extended argument on Twitter. Um, I don't know that it was an argument. It was a conversation. But some people really insistent that Phillips' number should be retired in Cincinnati because he's there's an argument. This is the way the, the one of the quotes went. There's an argument that can be made that he's the best second baseman in Reds history. No. No, you can make that argument. You're welcome to. This is the United States of America. Feel free. You can make that argument. You can't make any credible argument that Brandon Phillips is the greatest greatest second baseman in the history of the Cincinnati Reds. I mean, it's just, it's not even a, it's not even a question. It's not even close. There's this guy that played uh, for Cincinnati from 1972 uh, through 1979. You may have heard of him. His name was Joe Morgan. Pretty good player. Pretty good player. Made, uh, I think, eight all-star teams as a red. Won uh, four gold, five gold gloves. Won back-to-back most valuable player awards in the National League. Yeah, Joe Morgan. See, you're remembering him now. Good player. No, 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 no. no, Not a good player. Brandon Phillips was a good player. Joe Morgan was a great player. I mean, if you want to talk about whether there's an... Uh, where an argument is to be made, it's that Joe Morgan is the greatest second baseman in the history of baseball. And I'm happy to make that argument. Uh, I told you a moment ago, we're going to be talking to Tom Van Riper here in a moment, uh, who wrote this uh, this book, Cincinnati Red and Dodger Blue, and had a really good conversation with him. He, he says that he has Joe Morgan as his, I think, fourth best second baseman of all time. I'm happy to argue that he's the best. Um, but... Even if he's not the best, he's in the conversation for the best second baseman of all time. And it, it, it brings to mind, back in 1976, 
you know how players for the Yankees are always uh, overhyped. And, and Thurman Munson was the catcher in, in 76. And, you know, he was a, a really good player in his own right, certainly. But uh, there were people making the claim that that uh, Munson was as good or, or better than Johnny Bench, or at least in the same conversation. And Reds manager Sparky Anderson at the time said, "What I, one of my favorite quotes ever, and it was to the effect of, look, let, let's not embarrass Thurman Munson by comparing him to Johnny Bench. There's no catcher in baseball history like Johnny Bench. And and that's the way I feel about Brandon Phillips and, and saying that he's the best second baseman in, in Reds history. Why do we have to say that? I mean, first of all, how do people believe that? If you just a cursory look at the uh, at the numbers and what Morgan accomplished, it's not that difficult to uh, to determine very quickly that uh, Joe Morgan was far and away better than uh, Brandon Phillips. You know, Brandon Phillips. You look at his uh, his uh, wins above replacement numbers. His his high in wins above replacement in a season four point seven. Now I'm saying we look at the numbers and you can make the determination quickly. Look at look at the you know batting average on base percentage. Look at those numbers, you know. But looking at some of the more advanced things, and, and at this point, WAR is not exactly a, an advanced concept anymore. But 4.7 wins above replacement in 2011 for Brandon Phillips, which is a, a really good season. I mean, it, no complaints about that. That was a year that uh, the Reds didn't do so well, but it was in the middle of that big run where they were uh, playoff contenders, and uh, you know. Great season for Brandon Phillips. 4.7 wins above replacement. He hit uh, 300 that year with a 350 on base percentage. 18 home runs. 82 ribeye stakes. Now, look at Joe Morgan's wins above replacement numbers. In Cincinnati, he had one, two, three, four, five, six seasons as a Red in which his wins above replacement was higher, were higher than 4.7, which was Brandon Phillips' best season. So six seasons when you can sort of objectively say he was a better better player than Brandon Phillips. Six seasons just as a Red. I mean, he had more than that uh, during his time in Houston and had a year uh, with San Francisco late in his career where he was better than um, Brandon Phillips' best season ever. But if we're just talking about Reds' careers, look at the, I mean, uh, 1975 when he won his first MVP, 10.9 wins above replacement. I mean, that's just, that's, Legendary, nine point six wins over placement in nineteen seventy six. Um, his first two years with the Reds, nine point three and nine point two. So I mean, we're talking. I'm counting what uh, four seasons where uh, he had wins above replacement double in one season. What Brandon Phillips' best season was. So I mean, come on, let's not embarrass Brandon Phillips by comparing him to Joe Morgan. And what I hate about this conversation is it comes off as criticism. Of Brandon Phillips, it's it's it. You don't. Want. It's not criticism to say that someone is one of the best players in Reds history, one of the best second basemen in Reds history, a clear Hall of Famer, team Hall of Famer, Reds Hall of Famer. That's praise. That's a, a celebration of, of the great career he had. You know, eleven seasons, three All Star games, four Gold Gloves. I, you know. That's good stuff. That's a good player. No, Brandon Phillips, the Reds are not going to retire your number. As uh, Trent Rosecrans pointed out, actually, on Twitter, uh, the Reds already have a number four in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That was Ernie Lombardi. 
Um, and I think if we're going to retire number four. We would retire it for Lombardi before we would retire it for, for Brandon Phillips. But no, it's not going to be retired. Yes, we appreciate what you did, Brandon. No one intends to slap you in the face. We uh, celebrate your Reds career. Good luck in Atlanta and wherever the road takes you uh, from here on out. So, okay, well, that's enough about that. The 2017 Reds are still fun to watch as that walk-off uh, win uh, sort of uh, indicated. The Reds keep battling, keep battling, uh, and that's a that's an anecdotal thing, but it just seems like this team keeps fighting. Uh, you know, I doubt that in, in practice they're trying any harder than any other previous Reds team, but, man, they just seem to make more comebacks. That's probably because they got more talent there, but Votto is just uh, the looking great. Uh, Peraza st- finally started to come around. Zach Cozart is not sliding back at all. Zach Cozart is, hey, maybe he's a uh, baseball hall of Maybe we should retire Zach Cozart's number. Um, uh, what what a year Cozart's having so far this year. Just outstanding. And, you know, Su- Suarez, uh, Duvall, Shebler, those guys are all, all having great seasons. Fun to watch. The pitching, let's not talk about the pitching. Instead, let's talk to Tom Van Riper. As I said, Tom uh, has this is a book that's just out now. It's an all uh, uh all your online booksellers, you can find it. Uh, you may be able to find it at certain uh, bookstores in the Cincinnati area. And also, uh, Tom will be in Cincinnati, as he mentions in the... I'll try to add to the show notes, but he mentions in our talk that he'll be at uh, in some bookstores in Cincinnati later this summer. The book is Cincinnati Red and Dodger Blue. And here is my uh, conversation with author Tom Van Riper. Really happy to be joined today by Tom Van Riper. Tom is the author of a new, uh, brand new book about the uh, Cincinnati Reds entitled Cincinnati Red and Dodger Blue. So as you can tell, it's about the Reds and the Dodgers and what uh, Tom calls baseball's greatest forgotten rivalry. I'm looking forward to talking. Been looking forward to talking to Tom about this. How are you today, Tom? I'm great, Chad. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, um, this book, uh, you know, I've really got a kick out of it because let me just sort of uh, preface this by saying. I think you're absolutely right about this being uh, baseball's forgotten rivalry, and uh, constantly over the years, you know, we, we've talked about a rivalry now with the with the Cardinals and then with the Cubs now maybe with the with the Pirates and the Reds, the Indians. I guess yeah. they're they're trying to make a rivalry, and, I, and always it never fails. I get some somebody will comment, "Hey, wait a minute, there's never been a rivalry like we used to have back in the old National League West with the Dodgers," um, and so it's, I think you're right. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting with rivalries. You know, in, in fact, you said you said almost the opposite. There's a, a, a sports writer, a baseball writer in Los Angeles, who uh, it took issue with the premise. He said, "Calling this baseball's forgotten rivalry." Um, well, I haven't forgotten it. You know, I, I think the premise is wrong. Why call it the forgotten rivalry? You know, and <laughs> I kind of say right on the right uh, on the first line of the description is call it. I say let's call it the forgotten rivalry because. I do realize it's not literally forgotten by everybody. Those who are old enough to remember those days, and specifically those who are fans of the Reds and the Dodgers during the 70s, they remember it. Um, but I do talk to people. I mean, being from New York, you know, I speak to people who uh, were, did not really grow up as Dodgers or Red fans specifically, but remember baseball from those days. They're big fans. And when I would remind them, they'd say, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Back then in the 70s, Reds-Dodgers was a big deal. You know, um, because both teams were powerhouses kind of at the same time. The Reds really, really got that distinction first a couple of years before the Dodgers. But by about 1972, the Dodgers had joined the Reds 
um, as kind of a close superpower in the National League West. And at the time, this was the, the beginning of divisional play, which only started in 1969 after an expansion. And both of these clubs ended up in the National League West. And within a pretty short period of time, they both became, you know, real superpower teams. And their battles for really the next decade were pretty much the top show in baseball from the 70s right up. I, I would define it as going on into 1981. And and I think that uh, it absolutely can be described as forgotten among a certain uh, certain group. But there are certainly many many uh, uh, still around who cherish that rivalry. I wanted to ask how you how you got what, what piqued your interest about this particular subject. I understand you. I know you've written about uh, the business of sports for Forbes magazine uh, for a long time. Right. Uh, wrote for uh, uh, the Business Beat uh, for the uh, New York Daily News. Reds Dodgers. How how did that come about? You know, it's funny. That's right. I mean, I'm a kid from Long Island. You know, I grew up as a Mets fan in that era. I was not particularly a fan of the Reds or the Dodgers. So it's not like I grew up with a rooting interest in either team. I can't remember what honestly spurred me to think of this specifically, but I but I do know that generally it was just it's just because I remember them so well. You know, and I think the fact that I did not grow up in Cincinnati or in L.A. Uh, as a fan in particular of these two teams, and yet I still remember them so strongly from when I was a kid. I think that probably says a lot. It shows up, it shows how big these two teams were nationally. Um, back then, you know, these two clubs, one or the other was in the World Series for seven out of nine years, you know, from, from 1970 to 78, uh, including five years in a row from 74 to 78. You also had the All-Star game. The same five-year stretch, 1974 to 78, the Reds, and the Dodgers combined to place a minimum, a minimum of five starters in the All-Star game uh, over that stretch. In two of those years, they had seven starters. And back then, just to give it a little more context, remember, this is all back before MLB Network, ESPN, let alone the Internet or anything like that. None of us could see baseball from around the country, all the different various players and teams on our screens every night during the season like we can now. So these events, the postseason, the All-Star game, they drew much higher ratings on national TV than they do now. These were the big jewel events and big showcase events that people watched in big numbers because an average American back then had eight television channels and not 500. So that's my big memory of, 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 of how big these players and these teams were. I mean, every year you turned on the All-Star game that one night, uh, Tuesday night in July, and then in October you turned on uh, the World Series and the playoffs and you saw... Joe Morgan and Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Steve Garvey and Don Sutton and Tony Perez, that whole group. These were the main faces of the game during that time that I just remember so strongly. And they, they were a big force, I think, in pushing the game toward that bigger business that it became later in the 70s when ABC jumped on board, giving baseball two network partners for the first time. And, uh, of course, at the same time you had... You had free agency that started in 1976, which, you know, assured the players a bigger part of that pie uh, that was growing for baseball. So it, it was just a, a group of players on these two teams that were uh, a big force, I think, for the game at a, at a pretty tumultuous time. You know, we have uh, certainly our listenership are going to be Cincinnati Reds fans, and, and many of uh, all all of us Reds fans, we're all proud of, uh, justifiably so, what the Reds were able to accomplish in the 70s. But I'm not sure that uh, certainly fans of a certain vintage will remember, but I'm not sure that people realize how good the Dodgers were in the 70s. I mean, they averaged more than 90 wins a year uh, throughout the 1970s. Yeah. And, and if it weren't for the Reds, they may be remembered as uh, the big dynasty of the decade. It's, it's really uh, sort of uh, unfair to them. They, had, they happened to run into one of the great teams in baseball history, but they were great uh, on, in their own right, weren't they? 
Yeah, you're right. Over 90 wins per year was the average in the 70s. And, yeah, you had two juggernauts playing in the same division. Of course, you had other teams going on that. I mean, the Oakland A's won three World Series in a row from 1972 to 74. In fact, they beat the Dodgers and the Reds in the World Series in, in two of those years. Um, but, yeah, you know, in that era, the four divisions, you know, two in each league. Uh, so this is pre-wild card. And when you had two powerhouse clubs... Uh, in the same division without a wild card to fall back on. Yeah, that happened pretty often. The 1973 Dodgers finished with 95 wins, would have easily got them into the playoffs in, in most, more, you know, more recent years with a wild card. But playing in the same division as the Reds, they didn't even make the playoffs. The next year, the 1974 Reds won 98 games and didn't make the playoffs. So that, yeah, that was kind of the atmosphere. I think the Dodgers, that Dodger club historically has been a little bit underrated because until 1981, when the team was a little bit different, um, they did not win a World Series. They lost three times in the World Series, um, and five, I believe it's five separate times over that period, they finished second to the Reds. So they were kind of a bridesmaids team uh, in in that era, always seemingly finishing second to the Reds, or or when they did get to the World Series, they would lose to, to, to the A's or to the Yankees. Um, but, yeah, I think that has kind of shortchanged the memory of that Dodger team, had they pulled off a couple of titles like the Reds did in 75 and 76, I think their status historically would be a lot higher. Yeah. And you talk about that 1973 season, and that's kind of, you thread that season and in particular a right. uh, uh, September series throughout the book. Uh, you, the Reds won 99, the, the Dodgers won 95, but also, you know, we're talking about a different era. They were playing each other in 18 games a year, so I mean, they had to face each other, and, and there were all these opportunities uh, to, to face their, their biggest rival, and uh, it all came down to that uh, September series in Los Angeles, I guess, um, that you uh, that you weave so right. uh, throughout the book. Um, it just it was it was a different time, fewer fewer divisions, and and good more good teams can get lost, uh, I guess, than we see these days. That's a team that was obviously a playoff team nowadays. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in fact, in 1973, in particular, it was kind of a strange year because the Mets won the National League East with a record of 82 and 79. Um, it was just a balanced year in the East. A lot of mediocre teams uh, that were right around 500 were kind of going right down to the wire. Meantime, over in the West, there were six teams in the division at the time. Four of the six had winning records. You had the Reds with 99 wins, the Dodgers with 95, the Giants finished third, won 88 games. Uh, and then even the Astros, in the fourth-place team, were slightly above 500. So it speaks even more, I think, to the greatness of the Reds, Reds and the Dodgers, but even more so the Reds, who, who you know, who did even a little bit better. Um, considering that you played, you know, an, an imbalanced schedule, right? You played the majority of your games within the division. So let's say if you're talking about the 73 Reds, you played a disproportionate number of your games within the division, which that year was a strong division. Um, so with 99 wins, playing 18 times against the Dodgers and another 18 times against the Giants, which were the next two best teams in the league, you know, both teams being better than anyone in the East, that really boosts the Reds to, I think, a level that 99 wins doesn't even quite give justice to. Definitely. You know, if, you, if you're doing kind of a power ranking, you know, in a way based on not only one loss record, but also, you know, strength of schedule and so forth, like like you see people do now with the NFL and, and with baseball, um, but I do think the, 90, the 73 Reds, uh, in terms of regular season, are you can make a case they're about the greatest team ever, I believe, even with 99, even though they didn't have that 108, 110-win type of season. When you kind of do it in a, in a 
power ranking sort of way when you consider the toughness of their division that was that, that was an astounding year they had with, with 99 wins and sort of a surprising uh, maybe even fluky loss to the uh, to your Mets but Harrelson and the Mets in the playoffs that year I know. Well, you count me among those who uh, who believes that the the the, the, the postseason in baseball is kind of a small sample crapshoot. Yes. You know, I don't. I, I was. I was a ten year. That was the highlight of my life. I mean, I, I was. Ju- I was just turning ten years old to see the Mets that I had just become a big fan of maybe when I was eight suddenly make the playoffs and go up against the big red machine and win. I mean, I still have tremendous memories of that. So, if, yeah. Full disclosure. I was rooting as a young kid. I was rooting for the Mets in that series, but. Looking back at it now, and even back then, in fact, I wouldn't say that I thought the Mets had a better team than the Reds. It was just one of those things. It was a best-of-five series. The Mets did have good pitching. Um, so anything, anything can happen. You know, it, it went to five. It went to full five games, and the Mets, uh, the Mets did have Tom Seaver, who was the best pitcher in the game, who started two of those games. And, um, you know, they took, them, they took them three games to two. But, of course, no one would think that over a whole season the Mets would have finished ahead of the Reds in 73. We, we here on the, this uh, podcast we call him Future Red Tom Seaver. Uh, that That's time. right. <laughs> um, Talk about the saddest day of my life, June fifteenth, nineteen seventy seven. I bet the day, my, the day my childhood officially ended when Tom Seaver was traded to the Reds. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Now, <laughs> yeah. having having not grown up a Reds fan, was there anything you learned about the Big Red Machine that, uh, that was particularly interesting, or something you didn't know, or uh, just based upon your research? And you did uh, uh, quite a bit of research, clearly into the into the subject. Was there anything that piqued your interest that maybe you didn't know about before uh, digging into it? Uh, well, interestingly, I, I mean, in terms of some of their star players, um, of course I knew about it generally. I mean, I, I knew Joe Morgan was a great player, and Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Tony Perez, who were all in the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm kind of someone who's into the advanced statistics. I don't know if you are, sabermetrics, wins above replacement, and so forth. I didn't, I never, until I kind of looked at it from this standpoint, I didn't quite fully grasped how the Reds, Bob Hauser, their general manager, kind of transformed that team into from being what was really already a very good team into a juggernaut team by relying on things like on-base percentage, speed. When the Reds moved into Riverfront Stadium from Crosley Field, you know, all of a sudden they were in a more spacious ballpark, natural grass. They traded Lee May, um, who was a big power-hitting first baseman, who uh, I think had just hit 39 home runs for them in a big multiplayer deal. They got Joe Morgan, who in his Houston days was a good player, but not a tremendous player. I think his highest batting average was two eighty five. He had maybe 15 home runs for a high in a season. He comes to the Reds, and he becomes one of the great players of all time. And even though I kind of knew that based on his sort of the traditional stats, the batting average and the power and the defense and everything, and, and the stolen bases that he had, I never really looked at Joe Morgan quite as being quite as great as he was because it's only in more recent years we look at things like walks and on-base percentage. You know, Joe Morgan came to the Reds in 1972, and he has an on-base percentage of, I think, 417. He led the league, also stole 58 bases, and he went on for the next six years to average something like 415 on-base percentage. So it was really that contact hitting and the high on-base percentages you had by Morgan and Rose even Johnny Bench, a power hitter, in 73, he had almost a 380 on base percentage because he walked 100 times. Those are the kinds of things I didn't really notice. So the Reds shot up quite a bit from 1971 to 72 in on base percentage, even though they had traded some power, and that was really the key to them becoming just a juggernaut team. I, didn't, I never really, until we kind of get into the sabermetric area, and before I really researched this, I didn't quite see the Reds that way. 
And, and it you was, know what I mean? Sure. I, it, it, as much as I just sort of, I mean, I generally just knew they were a great club, but I didn't, I didn't really get into the nuances of speed and on base percentages and how much that had to do with it when they moved to the new park to become, you know, truly a powerhouse and not just, you know, a very good team. It was perfectly constructed for that park, wasn't it? That team. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they moved, it was actually a mid-season move, right? Mid-season 1970. 1970, uh, the, yes. Uh, right, mid-season. The Reds actually did, if I remember correctly, they did pretty well in the second half of 1970, uh, even after they moved. But they were kind of, I guess, already rolling in 1970. They did win the, the National League pennant. But they did lose pretty badly in the World Series to Baltimore in five games. And then the next year, the 71 season, the Reds slumped to 79 and 83. They had a losing record, the only off year they had during that whole stretch of years. And I never really thought of it this way at the time, being a young kid. But uh, the I guess Bob Howes and their general manager knew that they needed to transform a little bit into less power, more speed in defense. Uh, and so, you know, Lee May, their power hitting first baseman, was traded. Joe Morgan was brought in. Cesar Geronimo was brought in. Excellent, you know, defensive center fielder with a powerful arm. And like I said, their stolen bases as well as their uh, as well as their team on base percentage just just shot well up. They had a team that was one of the early adapters to that artificial turf, you know, uh, which was becoming the new trend in baseball in the late '60s and early '70s. And they were the first team to really kind of adapt to it. The Pirates in Pittsburgh kind of did the same thing. Um, although the teams were not quite as good as the Reds, but but they kind of dominated the Eastern Division in that era. So, yeah, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati were the early adopters to those spacious stadiums with artificial turf. They had the contact hitting, and they had uh, and they had the speed, um, which really really carried them for for a generation until things started to change again in the nineties. You mentioned uh, the advanced uh, statistics and the, the player analytics, and uh, certainly we're very. Uh, uh, you're not uh, you're preaching to the choir a little bit, I guess I'll say, with respect okay. to that. But uh, you said something in the book that uh, you know maybe a casual Reds fan might be surprised about or might take issue with. I think you're you're right, but it's it's surprising to think of it in these terms, and it really tells you how good this team was. Uh, you say that Pete Rose was the third best player in that lineup, and uh, a lot of people think Pete Rose. You know, he's a, sort of a giant in Cincinnati for lots of reasons, good and bad. Uh, but it's true. I mean, if you look at it, he he was a great player, but uh, you know, Morgan and Bench were just historically great. That's right. That's right. Now, now, of course, Johnny Bench was a catcher, and you know, in a physically demanding position. His his peak didn't last quite as long as Rose's did, but for certainly a period of time, uh, for must be I, I'd have to say a good six or seven years. Yeah, it was Bench and Morgan. I'd say, in fact, I'd say in order of Morgan and Bench, and then Rose. I mean, so I mean, Johnny Bench. By most anyone's measure, is the greatest catcher of all time. Joe Morgan is probably, at least by my analysis, is about the fourth greatest second baseman of all time. Uh, and the and the guys who are ahead of him historically, at least by my analysis, are Rogers Hornsby and Nat Blagojevich and Eddie Collins, none of whom played, you know, before the, or, or or after the 1930s. Which means Joe Morgan is basically the best second baseman of the last 85 years. Pete Rose doesn't quite have that kind of standing. Um, but yet Pete Rose is still an obviously all-time great player. He's the all-time hit leader. And just think of that fact for a second. You, 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 know, you talk about the all-time hit leader in Major League Baseball, the man who broke Ty Cobb's record, and he was probably the third best player in that lineup. That, that's, that's a pretty unbelievable thing. It's, it's really astounding, and it's not a criticism to say that he was not as good a, a player as Joe Morgan. Oh, no. Very few very few are. Uh, so you, you, was there a reason you chose that 73 season as the sort of uh, the thread 
for the book because it uh, it works well that way. But I was, uh, you know, they they fought all through the decade. Was there a reason that particular? And, and then that one series as well. Was there was there a reason? Yeah, I think I think maybe because that's when it really. That was the first time the two clubs had a real kind of almost wire-to-wire race. It was probably the single most dramatic race that they had in terms of going head-to-head. In 72, that was really the first year the Dodgers uh, became what, what you'd call a genuine contender after kind of making over some of their team um, and acquiring some good pitchers. It was the year they got Tommy John and so forth. Uh, and the Dodgers did race out to an early lead in 72, but the Reds caught them by about the middle of June that year and really never looked back. They went on to win by nine or ten games. So in 72, it was not really a down-to-the-wire race. The Reds kind of made their move relatively early. Um, but 73, the Dodgers were, the Reds were basically the same as they were in 72, you know, basically the same juggernaut team. The Dodgers, though, took another step forward as their younger players matured. They also added Andy Messersmith to their pitching staff and now had a truly, you know, phenomenal starting rotation. So that was the first year that they really kind of went head to head and had a terrific race pretty much, pretty much wire to wire. Um, and what was unbelievable was the way the Dodgers, by the end of June, actually jumped out to an 11-game lead over the Reds. And the Reds had the tremendous second half and came back to catch the Dodgers in September. So that was the first year they really had kind of a dramatic race with the Reds in the second half of the year really showcasing uh, what they were capable of when they came back, uh, when they came back from, from having slumped a little bit in June of that year. They won 60 of their last 86 games in 73 to, to overtake the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost yeah. impossible to fathom, yeah. and, and and I like the way you talked about that September series, and just sort of noted how many players of historic importance, and not necessarily just uh, Hall of Famers, but just historical importance. You already mentioned Andy Messersmith, the first free agent, and then Tommy yeah. John. It was just a lot of really interesting stories uh, below the surface in that series. Yeah, that that was really interesting to me. I, I don't remember how I stumbled onto that. I guess I was thinking of baseball when I was sort of brainstorming an idea of doing a book. I, these teams and players kind of jumped into my mind because I remember them so well, like like I mentioned before. But when I really looked at it more, I was like, boy, there are a lot of people from this thing that really wound up becoming historically big figures later on. Um, you could start with, you know, Sparky Anderson, for instance, the Reds manager, not only a Hall of Fame manager, but he's the first manager to win a World Series in both leagues, and he really is kind of considered the godfather of bullpenning to a degree. In in the 70s, he was a bit ahead of his time, right, in terms of making liberal use of relief pitching, yanking his starters after five or six innings very often. He was known as Captain Hook, right? But no sure. one would call him that now because it's kind of the standard. So this sort of where baseball is now, and you see how much bullpens are used uh, and the kind of uh, high profiles and salaries that relief pitchers make, you can trace it largely back to Sparky Anderson and his style with the Reds. Not, not that I would credit him exclusively, but I think he was a big part of that. Um, so he was really influential on, uh, on on the way baseball grew and changed over the years. And then, yeah, the ones you mentioned, the first free agency in baseball history, Andy Messersmith from the Dodgers, the first Tommy John surgery, Tommy John himself from that same Dodger rotation. Um, you could go into some other things. Uh, the Reds broadcaster, one of their young, one of their big part of the broadcast team was Al Michaels, who would go on to become, of course, just a few years later, a major a major uh, sports announcer of national prominence and give us probably the most famous call in history, right? Um, you, believe ice, mir- yeah. you believe in miracles, <laughs> yeah. Um, you could even go a little further. You know, the, uh, 
even though this is more kind of trivia type stuff, but you know, the pitcher who became famous for giving up Henry Aaron's record 715th home run was Al Downing from the Dodgers. Um, the man who made maybe, unfortunately for him, and I think it's unfair, but the man who maybe is associated with the most famous play in the history of the World Series, Bill Buckner, is from those Dodger teams. Um, so the list really goes on. I, in fact, you could go right to the Dodgers general manager of that era, Al Campanis, who became famous in the 80s, of course, a little infamous for making some racially insensitive remarks on Nightline um, when he was doing an interview with Ted Koppel about, you know, lack of minority hiring in baseball. And, you know, I guess without getting into that too much, I mean, some people thought he exhibited some racist tendencies. Other people thought that he just kind of committed a gaffe a little bit um, when he talked about why more minorities were not hired as general managers or managers. But regardless of what you think of what Al Campanis said, uh, the event still proved to be a big event because it was right after that that the conversation seemed to change and a lot more attention was paid was paid to that issue. And to this day, when people talk about this touchy subject of you know race relations in baseball, it seems like they always start by saying, "Well, ever since Al Campanis, you know, dot dot dot." So that was a big moment in baseball history. So there's a lot of stuff in baseball and in sports history that can be traced to these two clubs uh, during that time. And even just, like you say, some trivia, you know, Sparky Anderson grew up in the Los Angeles area, and I didn't realize that Dodger manager Walter Alston was an Ohio boy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I kind of stumbled onto that a little bit. I didn't realize that right away. But, yeah, a little bit of role reversal. Uh, Sparky Anderson, I know, was a native of South Dakota, but moved to Los Angeles as a child at some point, went to high school in L.A., um, about 40 miles from Dodger Stadium, and as a, as a minor league player, he was mostly a career minor league player until he had one year in the majors with the Philadelphia Phillies in 1959. But otherwise, he was mostly a career minor leaguer who played six years in the Dodgers system, made it his highest AAA, and never got a call up to the Dodgers. So I actually spoke to Jack Billingham for this book, a very good Reds pitcher at that time, who said, yeah, Sparky just loved beating the Dodgers. It seemed like no one really was vicious or took this thing personally when these two teams battled each other except Sparky Anderson who really always wanted to beat the Dodgers. And then as you said Walter Alston was a veteran of was a a native of Ohio grew up in a town at least at least part of his life in Dartown which is a town pretty close to Cincinnati uh and then he lived there uh in his retirement after he retired from the Dodgers in 76. Um so yeah according to one gentleman I spoke to he said uh yeah Walter Alston was a buckeye thrown through. You know, if he, he, I think he said if he hadn't been managing the Dodgers, he would have been a Reds fan. I did. I saw that uh, in the book. Yeah. Uh, one uh, before we uh, before we wrap up here, you you did go into some detail in the book about how this was the era where baseball looked like it was dying, and, and a lot of people giving credit to that big 1975 World Series uh, for helping yeah. bring baseball back. But I think you make a really good case as well that hey, this this the Dodgers and Reds were right at the forefront of what brought baseball back from the brink of. Uh, of you know it was it was dying it wasn't dying but it was certainly declining and um, this this rivalry was right in the thick of uh, I guess the reasons for why baseball exploded. It really was, and I yeah, I mean you're right. I wouldn't say dying necessarily. I didn't I didn't want to overstate this necessarily, but baseball was. Uh, you know, a little bland at the time. In the last three years of the 1960s, attendance declined in each uh, in each season for for three years in a row. Um, the Yankee dynasty had burst. They were kind of mediocre during this period. Some of the other traditional rivalries were a little bit dormant, um, such as the Yankees and Red Sox with the Baltimore Orioles dominating the, the uh, American League East at, at this time. 
Same with the Cubs and the Cardinals, you could say, in the National League East because that division was being dominated by Pittsburgh. What I didn't realize was, until I really researched this, was the degree to which Cincinnati and Los Angeles really dominated the attendance. I mean, for a good chunk of the 70s, they were outdrawing the rest of Major League Baseball by close to a 2-to-1 margin. For three years in particular, 19, three years in a row, uh, 1973, 4, and 5, both the Reds and the Dodgers drew over 2 million fans, while the rest of Major League Baseball was, was averaging about 1.2. All right, so, so, those, so those two clubs drew 2 million fans in each season for three years in a row. There was no other team in the league that drew 2 million fans in even one of those seasons. Hey, that's how much they were dominating um, at the gate. So, in, and, and as we mentioned, in addition to that, they were also providing the national audiences with most of the big faces of the game through the All-Star game and the postseason and so forth. So they really were at the forefront of, uh, of kind of snapping baseball out of a little bit of a funk that was going on uh, at the tail end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. You know, I uh, remember 1988, which is a little past the scope of your book. As I want to circle back around to it, but that's that's I was you know, 14 at the time, and that's when I first uh, really remember people saying, "Oh, you you wouldn't believe the the rivalry they used to have because the the Reds finished second to the Dodgers, but it was never really that close. They had a, a, a battle for the Cy Young Award that year with Oral Hershiser and Danny Jackson, and um, b- b- that's when I started that's to hear. Right. hear I, the I tales. think it was close for a while. The Dodgers won by about seven in the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They down yeah. the stretch, it wasn't really a, a great race, but. Uh, but you, you you point to 1981 as sort of the end of this, this that era of the rivalry, and I think it's a really I think it's a good place to close it up because of what happened. It was a crazy end of that season, wasn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to me because 1981, a lot of people might remember, was uh, the year of the Great Strike. Right, there were 50 games lost. The owners decided when the strike was, you know, the strike was from, you know, June to August. And so when the strike was settled, the owners decided, you know what, we're going to have a split season. So a lot of people might remember it's a split season. Instead of just continuing the season and playing, let's say, 100 to 110 games, they decided to cut the season in half, figuring fan interest attendance will be better if every team still had a shot when they began the second half. So what happens in 81? In June, the Dodgers were half a game ahead of the Reds when the strike hit. And so based on that, they were declared the first-half champ. So the, the Reds now have to start from scratch in the second half. They make a nice run again, but they lose narrowly to the Houston Astros. So now the season is over. The Dodgers and the Astros are playing in the Special Division Series as the first-half and second-half winners. The Reds, who have the best overall record in the division and the best overall record in all of baseball, are shut out altogether. What happens? The Dodgers go on finally, after all the second-place finishes and World Series losses, they go on to win the whole thing. They win three rounds of playoffs. They finally beat the Yankees in the World Series, so they conclude this era with with, uh, being a champion for the first time. It was also the last year, kind of fittingly, the final year that their record infield, if if you you may remember, Steve Garvey, Dave Lopes, Bill Russell, Ron Say, were together for eight and a half seasons, an all-time record for a starting infield. So in this, their final year together, they win the World Series. Meantime, though, the Reds, feeling like, well, we got shafted here a little bit, they go out on the last day of the season, I guess they had been eliminated the day before, and they go out and hold up a banner for their fans which said, baseball's best record, 1981, which basically was in lieu of you know having not having a chance to, to raise a championship banner because of the playoff format. So they go out on the field, they hold up a banner for the fans that said, baseball's best record, 1981. And I interpret that as saying, it might as well have read, hey, Dodgers, we're still better than you. <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's kind of how I end the book. And then basically, basically on that note, the rivalry ended. 
you know, I mean, not, not that anyone really necessarily knew that at the time, but by the next year, you know, things were changing. The Reds lost George Foster and Ken Griffey to, New, to the Yankees and Mets, and you know, they kind of sunk uh, quite a bit in 1982 before, and they were, you know, mediocre for a while until they rejuvenated again a little bit later in the 80s. But, but 1981 turned out to really mark the end of that Dodger-Red rivalry period, which had begun about 10 years earlier. So I thought it was fitting to end that way, that the Dodgers, on with the help of the schedule makers on a split season, finally won a World Series. But the, even then, the Reds were really a little better. Right, right. So it was, it was, it was kind of a fun way to end, the, to end the book. Well, as I said, this is something that I'm glad that, uh, that uh, you wrote this book, that someone finally tackled this topic, because this is something, maybe it's not technically forgotten, but it is, it is fading a little bit. And it was a big part of not just baseball history, but a, a big part of the history of the Big Red Machine, which is what we talk about a, a lot when we're talking about the Cincinnati Reds. So um, really enjoyed the book, and uh, where, can, where, can people buy, where can people buy Cincinnati Red and Dodger? Well, th- well thank you. It's, um, uh, well, in terms of where people can buy it, it's going to be in a couple of Barnes & Nobles. And Cincinnati. I, mean, I mean, the easiest way is to go on barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. It's on all those you know traditional bookselling websites. And I, I think Target and Walmart are selling it online as well. Um, in terms of stores, it's not really across the country, but I know that it's going to be in some Barnes & Nobles, at least in the Cincinnati area. Uh, in fact, if you don't mind me plugging, uh, coming up in June on, uh, let's see, Saturday the 17th, I'm going to be at a Barnes & Noble um, in the one in Cincinnati, Newport, the one in Newport, Kentucky, which is right. right across the river from the ballpark. I'm going to be at that one on Saturday the 17th at 12 noon, and then I'm hustling up at 3 o'clock to do another one uh, in Waterstone, uh, you know, about 20 miles north of downtown, at 3 o'clock on Saturday the 17th. So I'm going to be doing some Barnes & Nobles uh, in, the, in those couple of places. And then, last quick plug, if you know, not sure, uh, on Sunday, the, by the way, the, the, we're doing it this weekend because the Dodgers are in to play the Reds that weekend uh, in mid-June. So kind of sticking with that theme, I'm actually doing a, kind of a little presentation and the signing at the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum uh, on Sunday the 18th of June, before, right before the Reds-Dodgers game, from, from, something, from I believe 11 o'clock to about 12 or 12.30, right before the 1 o'clock game. Outstanding. I'd encourage, uh, encourage all listeners to go out, uh, check, him, check out, meet Mr. Uh, Van Riper at any of those events. Tell him you heard him here uh, when, you, when you talk to him. And uh, we'll put up a link up uh, on the website and in the show notes here. For Cincinnati Red and Dodger Blue, uh, so that you can go purchase that online. Tom, really good talking to you. Good luck with the book. You too, Chad. Thanks for having me. It's great. Thanks for listening to Red Leg Nation Radio from RedLegNation.com. Subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. And join us for discussion of all things Reds at RedLegNation.com. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com.
That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.